0: Well, go ahead and turn to Mark 4 in your scripture journals. That's page 28. And while you turn there, I want to sort of frame up our time. This morning, we return to our series through the gospel of Mark called On the Road with Jesus, a, a series uh, that began back in February when we took a break and, and then we took a break during the summer. And the, and the whole premise is that together we as a family hop in this big old sanctified greyhound with King Jesus as we examine closely the beauty of who he is. There's an emphasis on the part of we're doing this Together because you can't go at this alone. There's no argument that you could make for that. And so you and I were here on Sundays. We're together during community group. You guys are meeting, should be meeting for coffee and lunch and, and dinner throughout the week. And and we're doing this together. And yet, what is it exactly that we're doing together? Well, we're with Jesus. We're studying his Every word, examining his every action, seeing his every emotion so that we grow more deeply rooted in our lives. That is to say we are building our lives around him so that we can learn how to practice his way as we become more like him. We grow more rooted in him. And we're doing that through the lens Of Mark, Mark, who wrote his book, this letter to the first century church, hiding in persecution under the catacombs, uh, in the catacombs underneath the city, uh, uh, starving, begging for encouragement. Mark, who is a disciple of Peter's, is giving us these lessons on Jesus through Peter's vantage point. Mark's gospel is the first gospel written. A foundation for which Matthew and Luke write theirs. Mark writes quickly, if you remember. He writes kind of at breakneck speed. Not really chronologically, though our text this morning kind of fits in that way. But but typically not chronologically. But what he's trying to do is, is use these certain events and details to communicate a very deep and profound truth, which is Jesus is King. And he's not just any king. He's a, a servant king coming down from heaven, not to be served, but to serve. Essentially, Mark wants King Jesus to be separated in your mind from all the other earthly kings and rulers that you know. Mark wants Jesus elevated above all. We've seen this throughout the series, right? Can I, can I jog your memory a little bit? Jesus is the only servant who has a herald. We look to John the Baptist and his role in declaring the servant is coming. Jesus is the only king who lives on behalf of his people. We saw how Jesus, after his baptism, was led by the Holy Spirit to the desert to claim victory over Satan's schemes on our behalf. Jesus is the only king who complete strangers are compelled to follow. We saw Jesus call some fishermen to put down their nets and become fishers of Men, Jesus is the only king with authority over the physical and the spiritual. He teaches better with more authority than the scribes and he can cast out demons too. Jesus is the only king who cares about your headache and your leprosy. He gently touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand and healed her and he held the leper's hand to heal him too. Jesus is the only king with ultimate power for our ultimate Need Jesus not only cares for our physical ailments, our physical plights, but cares more deeply for our spiritual and eternal needs too. Jesus is the only king who is holy but hangs with the worst of them. We saw that Jesus was no party pooper, but literally, quite literally, the life of the party. And he's not bothered by your reputation because he's going to give you a new one anyway. Jesus is the only king who ruins religion by making it make sense. He's against the legalism, but for the family of faith. And Jesus speaks in ways that confuses his doubters, but encourages his people. Last time we were together in this series, we examined his parables and the clear lines in the sand they draw and call for us to respond. That's our Jesus. That's where we find him this morning. And so I have one big point that I want us to examine in two case studies. So I want to title our time together this morning, A Great Storm, A Great Calm, and A Great God. Would you stand for the reading of the word, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you, as together we hear from God this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And it reads on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd. They took with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you again in this place to teach us and comfort us and rebuke us and encourage us. We need you once again to keep us mindful of your word. Give us ears to hear it. Hearts to receive it and boldness to declare it and live it out. Would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher and gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name? Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> my grandmother is the hardest working person I know. She was born. In 1950 in Puerto Rico, and moved in her early 20s to America to try and find a better life. And though the status of better never actually came, she worked long and hard to provide for her four children and even her grandchildren. And uh, recently, my grandmother just retired, and uh, she's kind of miserable. Right? You know what I'm talking about, though. Like somebody who's worked from the time they were a child, and then now they're in their 70s, and they got no work, and they're like, "What do I do? I don't know what to do with myself. I don't want to watch TV. I, I'm just bored." That's that's my grandmother right now. You go and visit her; she's she's bored, out of her mind, and. Um, I used to live with my grandmother when I was young and and one thing I would do that annoyed her to no end was take naps. I love a good nap still to this day. A good 45 minute or hoo You had a busy morning, you go catch some z. oh man, let me tell you. But she would never wake me up. She would just she would let me rock and then when I would wake up, she would just give me this nastiest attitude like <laughs> she, would, she would just be so, she'd be like, why you do that? That's lazy. That's for lazy people, you know? And uh, now you got to understand where she's coming from. Right. She's coming from a place of pain and prejudice uh, when it comes to being lazy, where she's constantly told in in public and in TV and the news that Hispanics or Latino people, they're lazy. They don't work hard. And, and so she felt this all throughout her life. She felt this not only present necessity to work real hard. Right. All her kids. Now she's taking care of grandkids, but also a, a pressure from the outside, her outside world. To work hard to avoid a stereotype. So she's got baggage, right? Baggage I don't have, but she's got baggage. But I would always tell her, Jesus took naps. She would get upset at me. (laughs) She said, that's Jesus. But this morning's text is what I was always referring to. Our time this morning is one of the key passages that show us that Mark is capturing an eyewitness report. This is Peter's recollection of the moment. As one historian puts it, we know this is a firsthand account because it's filled with so much unnecessary detail. Legends or fables contain details that advance the plot or give characters development, but here the details serve nothing but proving genuine reminiscence. Mark gives us this account in his letter. To continue showing us, the readers, the absolute power of Jesus in every sphere of creation. This particular account, preaching to us Christ's power over the laws and forces of nature. We find Jesus after a long few days of ministry. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, we saw Jesus is surrounded by the crowds that happened often. He's surrounded by a great crowd, so much so that he gets into a boat, pulls the boat out, and preaches to the crowd from the boat, right? It's like, give me my space. But later, he goes to the mountainside with all his disciples. We're thinking there's like 80 of them. And he commissions his 12 apostles. The next day... Jesus is accused of being an instrument of Satan, and then he's almost kidnapped by his mother and his brothers because they think he's crazy, and then he goes back to the boats to preach the the parables because another great crowd had shown up. So we see in just these two chapters covering two days of Jesus's ministry, there are high highs and low lows. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that very much, can't you? I love seeing the humanity of Jesus or how we need to see this church. We need to see Jesus as experiencing the emotional highs and lows of a week. We we need to see how Jesus in, in this text wants relief from the crowds and rest when you are weary Christ knows, and he doesn't know in a, I understand how you could feel that way kind of knowing. He knows because he was once weary in his humanity too. He knows in a, I've been there before kind of knowing. How sweet it is to commune with someone who knows intimately what you go through. How much more sweeter than that is it to know that that person is God? We now approach the evening in the story. Jesus is desiring rest. So he tells the disciples to pull the boat out. We're going to the other side, he says. Other boats came with them. You see that detail in the text. Other boats came with them. We see other disciples, they wanted to stay the evening with Jesus, but out to the sea they go. The Greek here reveals to us a sense of urgency and Jesus's desire to leave the shore. He he is tired and he wants to go. You you know that feeling, right? Listen, I'm at my limit, right? I got to get out of here. I think Jesus hit a wall, right? You know that wall. A wall where you're working so hard that your body just stops. That's it. I got nothing left. Because as soon as they departed, he went to sleep immediately. But look at this scene in your mind's eye. This, this looks beautiful, doesn't it? The beach, people heading home, a couple of wooden boats pulling up their sails, heading down the sunset. But here's where we interact with our first case study. Look at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Our first, our first case study is a great storm. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world, even today. This is not, didn't change over time. It's 13 miles long, 700-ish feet below sea level, and it sits in a kind of basin surrounded by tall mountains and deep ravines. And these ravines can act as funnels for cool air that is up in the mountains to kind of shoot out into the warm air of the sea which can create some disastrous weather with no warning at all. That's exactly what we see here. We have this beautiful picture of these wooden boats heading across the sea and then suddenly, quickly, without warning, a terrible storm. A storm which gave the disciples a context to practice what they've just been taught. You hear me this morning? Think about this family. They just heard the parables. They heard of the mustard seed. Look at verse 30. They heard of the mustard seed. They just heard the teaching that the kingdom of God begins in this small and unnoticed way, that it, that it starts out small and frail, but eventually becomes great and mighty. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom far greater than any earthly kingdom with a people not of a specific nation, but from all the nations, a kingdom that is a safe place for birds to nest in. They, they just heard this. They were just told what they were a part of. That they were the start of something historic. That the kingdom of God could not be destroyed or shaken. But here comes a windstorm. Waves knocking the boat to and fro. Water filling up the boats. Matthew recalls this story as something similar to an earthquake. They were a boat floating in a a jar of water while someone shook it violently. The boat riding the tops of large waves and then dropping numbers of feet down to the surface of the water. Again, this is happening over and over. I mean, this was a dangerous moment in the lives of the disciples. But there was also a moment of realization for them where they're asking themselves, Are we really going to trust everything that Jesus said? That's what's at the heart of this text. A test. The storm is preaching to them something different than what Jesus had told them. Church, this is important for us to examine today as it was for the Roman catacomb church hiding underneath a city to gather for worship. The storm is preaching to them something different than what Jesus has told them. The storm was a setup for the disciples. They didn't know it. It it did not once cross their minds, but the storm didn't surprise God. Family, the truth is, Jesus will use the storm to test your faith like he did for them. Look at verse 35. He said to them, Let's go across to the other side. Jesus was the one who said, Let's go out on the sea. Jesus was the one who provided the context to practice what they were taught. Jesus knew what would happen. Is he not all knowing? He knew that when they set out over the water, the day would turn to night. The winds would kick up a mighty storm and flood their boats, rip their sails and even damage the ship. Jesus knew. I love the contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus knew, but the disciples didn't. They were blindsided. This was not on their radar. But also, was this more than they can handle? I'm sure that was the case. I'm sure that was the case. Half of the apostles are experienced fishermen. I don't know about you, but when I'm out of my element, when I'm out of my comfort zone, I want to be with someone who's been there before. It adds a great deal of security to me, right? If I could do some projection here, right? It's a fact that these boys made a living in this very sea. They were very successful fishing all their lives in this lake. It's a fact that they were also panicking for their lives. But it's also a fact that Jesus set that this storm was set up by Jesus. I think I can safely infer that the test here was not about knowledgeability. The test was not about possessing the know-how to make it through the storm safely, like the game shows we watch on TV, right? That's not the test here. But that This storm provided a space for the temptation of relying on your own strength and training and occupational skills and qualities to be obsolete for the use of something much more greater faith and trust in the words of Christ. This is theology for life. Today, you might leave this place. Maybe it's already happened. You leave this place and your day is beautiful, no different than the sunset over the Galilean shore, but then suddenly, quickly, without warning, a great storm. One minute you're doing well, and in a sudden moment, you aren't. The phone rings and the doctor says, news you don't want to hear. The phone rings and someone on the other line begins with, I'm sorry, there was an accident. Your boss, and call, your boss calls and says, we got to cut the company down. You're getting let go. You failed an exam and and years worth of work. You now have to start over again. These These are not out of bounds. They're not conflicting. They're the stuff of life. And you can find yourself in one of these things or things like these in an instant. You can find yourself in a great storm. You never saw coming that you can't expert your way out of, but that didn't surprise God at all. Look at the disciples and look to yourself. It's dark. The boat is filling with water. Lightning is flashing. The waves are crashing. Thunder is rolling. The both those sounds sound equally the same in this moment. There's nothing you can do to get out of the storm you are in. There's no skill or knowledge to save yourself from the feeling of impending disruption. And God is silent, fast asleep. You know that feeling. Do I have Christians in the room this morning? That You're going through the worst of things. And this feeling begins to blossom in your mind and in your heart that God doesn't care. Can you be real this morning so I can encourage you? There's three things you need to remember in the storm. One is direction. Jesus was the one who said, let us go. To the other side. God guides your steps. When you find yourself in the storm. You've got to remember. That Jesus was the one who sent you that way. But he also didn't send you alone. Number two is presence. Jesus didn't say hey. You go to the other side of that lake. And I'll wait here. No. He said let us go. To the other side. You've got to remember. That no matter what you go through. Today or tomorrow. This week or next week. You've got to remember that God. Is with you. Number three is word. Remember what Jesus said. Like I told you before. They had just heard. How the kingdom of God. Was going to start with them. How they were safe, able to nest in the bush that would grow from this mustard seed. Direction, presence, word. This reminds me of something I was talking to my kids about. One of our Bible studies was about Abraham and how God told Abraham he would be the father of many nations. The problem was Abraham didn't have any kids. And so naturally Abraham is like, God, I love what you're telling me right now. This is the desire of my heart. I, I, I love this, but... I'm far in age and so is my wife. She can't have kids. So Abraham gets someone else pregnant thinking that's what God meant. He didn't trust in God's word. He didn't wait on God to do what he said he was going to do. He didn't trust that was spoken, that what was spoken would come to pass. Abraham, in his panic, in his anxiety, in his doubt, felt like he had to do it on his own strength. And what happened? His wife had a baby. God delivered on his promise. I think I'm reminded of of the catacomb church in Rome to who this letter was given to. They are in the storm, hunted, persecuted, hiding in the tombs and crypts underneath the city to worship, reading letters by flickering candle, mourning the deaths of those who were caught worshiping outside the temptation that God was indifferent towards them is real. And that's why Mark is writing to them. Family, in the midst of these storms, these tests of faith, don't give in to the temptation. Don't buckle under the pressure like the disciples did. Keep in mind all that they did not. God directs your steps, God is present with you, and his promises will keep you. It is tempting. It is tempting. To believe that Jesus doesn't care. The disciples themselves felt this tension in the midst of the storm. Look at verse 38. But he was in the stern. Asleep on the cushion. Just imagine you're there with them. They're going through the worst thing imaginable right now. The worst thing that could happen on this boat right now is this storm. They're in fear for their lives. You're there, right? Imagine yourself there in fear for your lives. And you turn around to the back of the boat to see what Jesus is doing in all of this. You're thinking to yourself, maybe we could learn from him right now. Maybe Jesus has some skill or method to ride this thing out. And so they look back, and what do they see? He's sleeping they begin to think, does he not hear our cries? Does he not hear our fear? Does he not hear us trying to keep everyone from drowning? How could Jesus be silent, sleeping, and peaceful? Church, you know this feeling. Sometimes we pray and we still can't find that job. Sometimes we pray for our children to be healed, and they're not. Sometimes we pray for our marriage to be restored, and it isn't. For the confusion in our faith to be lifted, and it isn't. For the trial, whatever trial you're going through, to pass. For that storm to to go away, and it feels like God is silent. I love what Spurgeon says on this text. He writes, "The, the apparent indifference of the Lord to his people is only apparent. He has real care for them at times when he seems indifferent, and they shall see this to be the case by and by. Family, I ask you this question this morning. Who are you going to listen to, the king or the storm? God is not indifferent towards your situation. God knows every wave that falls on us, every wind that beats on us, every drop of rain falling on our heads, knows the rate at which your heart is beating in this moment, knows every breath that you're taking in exasperation, every thought and feeling that you felt in the midst of it all. Family, the boat with Christ sleeping inside was a gift the disciples could not see. Did that boat turn over? No. Did that boat sink? No. Did it stay afloat? Yes. The signs were all there. That storm was necessary for the disciples' spiritual development. And we see this in our second case study. And with this, I'll try and close this thing up. A great call. Look at verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and sea and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Our second case study is the great calm. Look at the words of Jesus. Look at, look at, not the words of Jesus, but just the words of the writing here. It says, they woke him. That's interesting, right? Right? Isn't that interesting? Jesus was in the storm with them, and yet he never woke up. There was nothing that the storm could do, nothing that the storm could bring that would get Jesus not just worried, but to even give it attention. There was no thunder that roared, no lightning that clapped, no flooding of the boat, no rain on his face or wave that splashed to get him to give the storm any attention at all. But when his children cry out, you're not hearing me this morning, when his children cry out, Jesus woke up. Not because the storm woke him up. The storm tried. It tried with every threatening bark it could make. And still no attention was given to it. No, no, no. But when his children call on him. Jesus wants to know, family, can you trust me when I don't do what you think I should be doing right now? Jesus wants to know, family, when I tell you I'm going to keep you. Can you trust me to do that even when it feels like that's being threatened because the honest truth is he ain't bothered by the storm because it can't do nothing to anything he's already set in motion. It can't hinder his plans. It can't stop what he wants to do. It can't shape his fear. Jesus wants to know, family, will you trust me when I'm not answering the way you think I should, when things aren't going the way you think they should go? Will you trust me that I'm good and good all the time when your life isn't? That's what the storm is there for. That's why I led you this way. That's why I ain't bothered. Will you trust me? But family, even even when we don't trust him, even when we don't trust him, who gets his attention? Not the storm. His children. His children. They woke him and said, Teacher. It's funny that they would call him teacher and didn't learn a word he said. But they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a question. What a question, because the question is not doubting Jesus's power, right? The question is not doubting Jesus's ability to calm the storm. No, they're questioning his love. Do you not care that we're perishing? Micah Edmondson says on this, when the storm is raging and God is silent, It is all too easy for the people of God to begin to doubt, not the power of God, but the love of God. Jesus gets up and the first thing he he does is he doesn't rebuke the disciples. He doesn't confront them immediately. He looks to the storm, tells it, orders it to be muzzled, to be still and remain so. Just as sudden as the storm came, the storm left. All the gospel accounts recorded the same way. It was an abrupt, immediate calm. The wind and the rain stopped immediately. The waves were flattened. The clouds rolled away to reveal the evening sky. It was pin, drop, quiet. That's how Jesus got their attention. Not with shouting and pouting. Not with disappointment and frustration, not with the gentle raising of his hand to calm the sea, but but with the gentle raising of his hand to calm the sea, excuse me. To exemplify what we know Paul writes in Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things and in him all things hold together. He flexes his authority over creation in an instant and then he speaks to them. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? This is a deeply personal and deeply profound question. Jesus is asking, how do you still not trust me? How do you go through all that you've gone through knowing what you know about me and yet question my love for you? Family, God loves us. God loves us all through this story. His love is permeated through it in his humanity. He wants to leave with his disciples, not alone. Not alone. He's done with his ministry. He says, hey, let us go out. I want to be with you. And in his divinity, he has prepared for them a storm for their spiritual growth. Never once did the boat sink. Never once was their lives in any real danger. It was to their call that he awoke. It was their need that stirred his attention and his action. He could have just rebuked them for waking him. He could have rebuked them for questioning him. But instead, he meets their need and confronts their doubt and his love for them. There's so much love wrapped in these, verse, in these six verses, and yet the disciples could not see it In church, the same is true for us this morning. Read verse 40. Close your eyes and think about how you would answer. Truly answer this question to the one who knows if you're lying. Ask yourself, why don't I trust you yet? Why don't I trust in your love for me just yet? How have I not learned from all that you have told me? These two case studies teach us one big point. There is a great God. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The same word used to describe the storm is the same word used to describe the calm and it's the same word used to describe their fear. They were looking at Jesus with more fear than anything they've ever seen in their entire life, including that storm. It says a great fear. Jesus revealing his power and authority, confronting their unspoken doubts, creates a fear. The Greek here is phobeomai. It means to have a great awe a great awe Jesus' identity creates a great awe in us family there's a message in here when the disciples look at Jesus with a great awe it's because he didn't just reveal that he is God but that he is God with them you hear me it wasn't just that he's God but that he's God with them. Family, when you go through your storms, when you have your doubt, when you go through your fears, when your hair starts to fall out and the stress starts to take its toll and the apathy starts to creep in and confusion begins to reign, all sorts of chaos in your life, remember that Jesus is God with you. Remember that little boat That keeps you afloat is also keeping the Messiah afloat with you. The one who can calm the sea. Who can get the wind to chill. Who can make the rain cease. The thunder roll away. Who can make the clouds pull back like a curtain. Revealing the masterpiece of the sunset. That is who you have with you. That is who loves you. Who cares for you. And who calls you to trust in him deeply this morning. Stand with me in worship.